0: This is TanakhCast. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode forty-five, Deuteronomy chapters sixteen through nineteen, and we're back to the discussion about holy days, the Pesach offering, the ban on leavened bread, and where to eat the Pesach offering, specifically God's appointed place, and then. Shavuot, seven weeks later when you make a pilgrimage to the appointed place again and it's a reason to party and to include everyone in the celebration, your family, your servants, the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, the widow, everyone. And why should you do this? Because you were a slave in Egypt. The third pilgrimage festival, Sukkot, rolls out in the fall after the last harvest of the season and again it's a party and it includes everyone. And when you come to visit God in his house, bring a little something, quote, each man according to the giving capacity of his hand, according to the blessing of Adonai your God that he has given you. And then we're back to the just and fair society stuff, namely the appointment of judges and officials and the establishment of fair courts, quote, equity, equity, you are to pursue in order that you may live and possess the land that Adonai your God is giving you. And since we're talking about the land, don't indulge in idolatry. No Asherah trees, no standing stones. God really hates that. And God doesn't like defective near offerings either. Do you know what else God doesn't like? Folks who indulge in idolatry. Find them and stone them. But as chapter 17 also points out, you can't condemn someone to death without two or three witnesses corroborating testimony and the witnesses themselves are the first to throw the stones and then everyone else is invited to join in now that's a party but if there are legal matters that are too extraordinary too complex to be resolved locally you're to kick it upstairs to a higher court the levitical priests and to the quote judge that there is in those days And when they rule on the matter fairly and justly, you'd better listen, because if you don't, quote, dead is that man, so you shall burn out the evil from Israel. Again, Moshe reminds the people about what will happen when they arrive in the land of Israel, about how they will want a king to rule over them, and how that king should limit the number of horses in his stables, the number of wives in his palace, the gold and silver in his treasury, and how he should never return the people to Egypt. And so the king doesn't forget these limits to his power. He's to write them for himself, like a copy of Moshe's instruction in a document in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it's to be a persistent reminder, a book that's to be read from and referred to. So the king doesn't forget himself and his responsibility to the law or to God or to the people to whom he is equal. Moshe reminds us in chapter 18 that the Levites are not to have a portion in the land of Israel, but a cut of all the donations and near offerings and whatever else people feel the need to give to the temple. And since we're in the reminding mood, which we've been a lot, Moshe reminds the people again that they should not indulge in the abominations of the locals, not to pass their children through the fires or seek the counsel of an augurer or hidden sorcerer or diviner or enchanter or a tire of magical knots, or a seeker of ghosts, or an inquirer of the dead. These things, if you haven't figured out by now, are abominations to God. God doesn't like them. God dispossessed the indigenous peoples of their land because they ran after all these abominations. So, uh, hint, hint. And when God sends a prophet to bring the good word, folks should listen, and listen really well and closely. But if the prophet is presumptuous and goes off-book, or speaks on behalf of other gods... I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night, I want to piss on And if the prophet speaks in God's name, but what he or she speaks about, say, the Cubs winning the pennant, is not fulfilled, then you can be sure he is going off-book and should be dealt with accordingly, especially when it comes to Chicago baseball. Chapter 19 sets up the system of cities of refuge where accidental murderers can flee and find sanctuary from blood redeemers. Let's just say you're out in the forest uh, chopping wood. And because of a technical malfunction, a passerby is killed by a flying piece of debris. You can flee to one of these geographically distributed towns, and like Home Free in the game of Tag, you're safe there from whomever is it. In this case, a close relative of the dead individual who is hot for revenge. Moshe points out that the accidental murderer would not receive the death penalty because of what happened, as there is no malice or forethought, but the city of refuge stays the hand of the blood redeemer. But if some guy who has a long-standing beef with his neighbor for playing Kid Rock way too loud on the weekends lays in wait when his neighbor returns from buying a 2-4 at the local beer store and kills him... (coughs) The city of refuge is not an option for him, even if the murderer reaches there before the blood redeemer gets his hands on him. The murderer can be dragged out of there and handed over and... Ah! And since we're talking about situations that potentially might end up in court, Moshe repeats the need for at least two witness testimonies to settle anything, and if someone tries to frame another with false testimony, you should do to the perjurer what he sought to do to the innocent. Not only does this sound fair and even handed, it also serves as a deterrent to others who would be tempted to try to use the legal system to settle a personal score. Quote, Those who remain will hear and will be awed. They will not continue to do any more according to this evil practiced in your midst. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. (laughs) This week, I'd I'd like to consider the novel legal construct, which is the city of refuge. You know, we populate our lives with novel constructs all the time. Things that everyone agrees are real with real world implications, but they're just ideas. They're really fictions. They're, They're just giving physical form. So take the concept of money, for example. We collectively value pieces of paper. And pieces of metal, and exchange them for perceived equivalent amounts of goods and services, but money really is just a fiction, and you know legal traditions are filled with similar fictions that we all agree are for lack of a better word non fiction and This week's portion presents a pretty serious example of a fiction made real so Moshe establishes a zone defense against blood redeemers, setting aside six cities of refuge evenly distributed east to west and north to south across the promised land of Canaan. These cities of refuge provide sanctuary for accidental murderers. But why establish these home bases for murder and and not, say, uh, rape? As Iris Henneman, the developer of the precog program, designer of the system in the interface, wrote, There's nothing more destructive to the metaphysical fabric that binds us in the untimely murder of one human being by another. (laughs) Somehow I don't think that was Walt Whitman. There is something very base, very primal and intimate about murder. And at the same time, intimately familiar because we all have been angry and wondered what it would be like to, well, murder another human being. And if you've been stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So into the breach comes Moshe with this seemingly crazy utopian scheme, which, as crazy as it sounds, was actually quite common in antiquity. The Phoenicians, the Syrians, the Greeks, and the Romans had specific shrines or sacred precincts set aside as a place of refuge or sanctuary. An Aramaic treaty inscription of the 8th century BCE indicates that Aleppo, which is in present-day Syria, was a city of refuge. Sanctuary as a concept persists even in the West today, albeit in a somewhat modified form. In the 1980s, in response to the deteriorating political situation in Central America, largely as a result of indirect intervention by the U.S. and increasingly draconian immigration policies enacted by the same American government, the sanctuary movement sought to establish safe havens for asylum seekers in the U.S., and between 1980 and 1991, almost one million Central Americans crossed the U.S. border seeking asylum. Most were fleeing political upheaval and violence in Guatemala and El Salvador, and some had fled Nicaragua in the wake of the 1979 Nicaraguan Revolution. The sanctuary movement first took root along the border between Arizona and Mexico, but it quickly spread to four other states. At its peak, over 500 congregations, representing synagogues and churches from 10 different Christian denominations, declared themselves sanctuaries and provided shelter, material goods, and in many cases legal advice to Central American refugees. Although openly defiant of federal law, it was surprising that more sanctuary activists were not prosecuted. The ones that were in the mid-1980s received very light sentences of house arrest or had their sentences suspended. The thing is that despite the precedent from the Torah, ancient Roman law, medieval canon law, and British common law, North American law does not recognize sanctuaries having any legal standing. Even so, it seems that government officials are leery to send armed officers into churches and synagogues with guns drawn to arrest refugees. Perhaps it would look really, really bad on YouTube. But governments have confronted this legal construct in the courts. The Supreme Court of Israel, for example, handed down a ruling in a 1987 case, Weill versus The State of Israel et al., in which the petitioner, Louis Weill, requested a leave of absence to have a conjugal visit with his wife. Weil was an observant Jew, and he claimed that his incarceration did not override the commandment to, quote, be fruitful and multiply, which is all well and good, but on its surface has nothing to do, this whole case has nothing to do with cities of refuge. Wilde didn't kill anybody and he wasn't in jail to keep him safe from the blood redeemer. Nonetheless, Justice Elone wrote in his decision that while Jewish tradition has no tradition of incarceration, the experience of the accidental murderer in the city of refuge was regarded by rabbinic sources as a form of confinement. True, the confinement was a necessary protection from the blood redeemer, but even in cases where there was no blood redeemer, exile was the prescribed course of action. I now take from you your power, the name of my father, and his father I it, father. Cut you But unlike what happened to Thor, this exile was pretty benign. The murderer was exiled with his family. He was provided with appropriate accommodation a job, education, and other basic needs. And there was a trial to determine culpability. If he was found guilty of intentional murder, the now intentional murderer would be put out of the city, left to his own devices, and subject to the blood redeemer's vengeance. But if the murder was ruled an accident, the accidental murderer was never allowed to leave the city, even to fulfill a commandment until the death of the sitting high priest, which prompted the family members of the sitting high priest to send care packages so that the accidental murderer would not pray for the high priest's untimely death. On these grounds, Weil's petition was denied. However, the court also ruled that the prisons and the legislature must allow the exercise of this conjugal right by giving furloughs or setting up prison facilities for this purpose. So one could say that Weil may have lost the court battle, but he won the war. But what is also interesting to note here, that is, in the case of our accidental murderer, is that even when you accidentally kill, even with the court ruling that the death was accidental, and even if there is no blood-redeemer waiting at the gate to exact revenge, the accidental murderer has to remain in internal exile in the city of refuge. We can never truly be sure that what happened that resulted in the ruled accidental death was truly an accident. So, for this reason, the accidental murderer must remain, sequestered until the high priest's death. Similarly, today, dozens of asylum seekers must remain inside their churches and synagogues, waiting while the courts and government bureaucracies consider and reconsider granting them refugee status. But what of the other side of the city of refuge equation? What of the blood-redeemer? Private revenge was also a common practice in ancient civilizations, and in the case of the Tanakh, it also included revenge for acts of mayhem and rape. Any next of kin of the victim could become the Go'el Hadam, or Blood Redeemer. But the Blood Redeemer is not the Terminator. The accidental murderer needs to be convicted of murder before the Blood Redeemer can get their hands on him, at which point... The accidental murderer is no longer considered accidental, which bears emphasizing as when it comes to agency in Jewish law, that is, when one does something, there are only two states of being, mezid, or deliberate, and shogeg, or not on purpose. There's no middle ground. For an action to be considered mezid, or deliberate, the individual must know that what he or she is doing is wrong, and yet still intends to do it. If he or she does not know that his or her actions were prohibited, or thought that in a particular circumstance it was permitted, then he or she is considered to have done it bishogeg, or not on purpose. There is a third category, onis, but it falls outside this either-or because there is no agency involved. Onis involves the individual being forced to do the action, in which case they're not responsible. But what's interesting to note here is now we have two murders committed bimezid, The first committed by the murderer, formerly known as an accidental murderer, and the second perpetuated with great intentionality by the blood-redeemer, which begs the question, who will redeem the blood of the murderer? Are we doomed to an endless cycle of murder and counter-murder? In a word, no. In the instance of the murderer formerly known as the accidental murderer, one could say that damo birosho, or bo," which is rendered as, quote, his blood is on his head, or, quote, his blood is on him. Which means that the blood of the murderer remains with him and not to the blood redeemer. The cycle ends here, and the blood, shed deliberately, is redeemed. But... There's one other thing what's even more interesting to note here is despite living in an era of rampant privatization of healthcare, of natural resources of prisons of basic social services driven by this idea that individuals can solve problems better and act more wisely and effectively than government we have deprivatized revenge individuals even in the most righteous of moments are not allowed to take the law into their own hands even if my closest relative is slain intentionally. I'm not allowed to slap a 30-round magazine into a Bushmaster AR-15 semi-automatic rifle and go out there and redeem his blood. I mean, I am allowed to own a Bushmaster AR-15 in the United States, although many states will not allow me to own a magazine that carries more than 10 rounds. But redeem blood? No, 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 no. Thanks, Obama. Because today, the modern state has the monopoly on violence, which, considering how many folks have AR-15s and other such weapons, might not be such a terrible thing. Police are authorized to use physical force to detain, incapacitate, and kill. And with the increasing militarization of the police, the police are better able to detain, incapacitate, and kill even more people than ever before. Which is a cause of some concern for me because, well, yeah, you know. So I'll have to leave it to the state to redeem my blood, but I'm still a bit leery because, as we've talked about in previous episodes, particularly episode 33, where we discussed Sota, the allegedly adulterous wife, and her trial by ordeal, the state's work, although necessary-ish, is far from perfect. So perhaps it might be better if some caution is exercised before my blood is redeemed it might save some more blood in the process as always you can leave a comment question or comment at the facebook page that's facebook.com/tanachcast t a n a k h c a s t or at the nextjew.com or you can leave a comment question or comment at the itunes store at stitcher smart radio or soundcloud and while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week ish for episode 46 on the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 20 through 23. Y'all come back now. Here.